0: Thank you. Welcome back to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and enjoying the slightly longer days. Now, for our episode today, we could not think of a better surgeon to represent the transition from Black History Month into Women's History. Month than Dr. Linda Bradley. Linda is a truly remarkable clinician, an educator, sponsor, researcher, mentor, and she's even a surgical coach. We all know her as the queen of hysteroscopy, and her innovation and passion have truly changed the field. She's currently a professor in surgery at the Lerner College of Medicine here in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Cleveland Clinic, where she was actually the very first female African American surgeon to join the staff over 25 years ago. She serves as a medical Director of AAGL, and was made an honorary member of SGS this past year. In this episode, Linda opens up about her upbringing in Cleveland, how to encourage more Black men and women to enter medicine, and the integration of her family into her work life. We hope you all enjoy this vulnerable and truly inspirational interview. All right, good morning. I am so excited to have Dr. Linda Bradley on our show today. Welcome, Linda, to Unscrubbed.
1: Thank you so much. It's such an honor, Kara, to have been asked. I've really been a little nervous about this, but I think I've listened to so many of your podcasts, and it's illuminating, exciting, and I think we get to know a different side of a specialty, a surgeon, and what's going on. So this is awesome. What a great topic, and I love the name.
0: Thank you. Yeah, you have been one of our most sought-out guests, so I know you are extremely busy. We, we so appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. So we're gonna jump right into it this morning, Linda. So I wanna start out um, by talking a little bit about your, your upbringing in Cleveland. And you, know, you have prioritized serving the marginalized and underserved for your entire career. And I've heard you talk about the importance of your zip code, you know, how your neighborhood dictates so much in your life regarding education and healthcare and resources in general. Can you expand upon that a little bit and maybe bring in you know, your upbringing here in Cleveland?
1: Sure. Uh, maybe I'll just start with. I am a native Clevelander. Uh, I actually grew up uh, not far from the Cleveland Clinic, and actually went to elementary school um, until second grade here in the Cleveland Clinic area. Definitely, it was a different time, a different area. Even the streets that the Cleveland Clinic for has research buildings and all of that, it used to be a very much a thriving African American entrepreneurial community and I think um, right now it's no longer that. So I, my parents, uh, my mom was a teacher, um, she's still living, a teacher. Um, my dad, because of really it was racism, he is college educated, but could not as a black man get a job. And he ended up holding many different jobs. Uh, I often say too numerous to count, but at least six different things to work for the family. And my mother um, was a teacher. It wasn't until I got to probably sixth grade that my father gained... Gainful employment. I'm extremely proud that he became a health teacher and a coach. Had the winning basketball team in uh, the state of Ohio for junior high. And he went back and got his master's. But I think my resilience, my perseverance, my take no for answers really came from both of my parents but they both really just worked tremendously hard uh, with odd and end jobs you know nowadays what do we call them essential workers but you know every country club in cleveland that i go to uh, my dad worked there as a butler as a server all the sort of huge mansions in cleveland my father often as he described it the quote big parties in terms of it being a butler there. So, and my mom also was an elementary school teacher, first kindergarten and first grade. The reason that we moved from this area was that when I was in elementary school, because of overcrowding in Cleveland, there were just too many kids and kids were having to go to school only a half a day. So, my parents um, mustered up the money and work and borrowing from family to move um, we were the We moved actually to an all white area called Lee Harbor Community. We were the first African Americans on our street when I was uh, seven years old and within eighteen months, we had white flight. not one white person left in the neighborhood. I went to a public high school, um, did very well in terms of my grades, and then went on to Vassar College for undergrad. Uh, my sister went to Yale. We were the only uh, really in our neighborhood girls that even left to go out of the, out of the city, I should say city slash state. But my parents had such vision, and they were such believers in uh, education that I've taken this uh, for my own, sort of a mantra to always try to do better. And, you know, as we're living a life right now, I can see and I read a lot, and read a lot about the neighborhood and neighborhoods that I grew up with. And I just, for myself and my family and my sister, I just think we, we were very fortunate to have the kind of visionaries as parents, Who had a strong work ethic, but more importantly, the importance of education. So, you know, what would I say? Uh, Growing up, I didn't, you know, grow up with a silver spoon. I understood what it would take. You know, my kids jokingly say to me, "Well, Mom, you didn't fly to college." My my kids were flying from age six, you know, six months old to every every place. I mean, I took the Greyhound bus to Vassar, which was probably a fourteen hour. You know, door to door experience. I took the train that would leave Cleveland at 2 a.m. and get through New York City. Take another train to Poughkeepsie. So I, you know, I just look at. You know, I never thought felt that we were poor or under resourced. Only ate out like once a year on my birthday. Only took one vacation in my whole life, 1964 to the World's Fair. But we would spend our summers in the most bucolic. Communities. My grandparents lived in the south, and all my, it's just my sister and I, but all four grandkids would spend three months with our grandparents, really up until I got to be 16, and then there were other competing activities. So I grew up in a very much a family forward in terms of education. I have a picture of five generations of women in my family who have lived to you know, ripe old age of over 100. And, you know, no one's been in a nursing home. No one had dementia. They just, you know, God just took them. And so I'm very fortunate. I say, I'll drop dead of stress. But I do think that my my parents and grandparents, you know, my great-great-grandmother ironed shirts to make money. And her mother was just two generations out of slavery. And my grandmother was a beautician. Uh, She would have a fit if she knows i don 't Keep my hair up all the time but um, and my mother was very she was the first uh, to have a college education. The others really had an education you know I think I heard sixth grade eighth grade eighth grade at the at the most, but they were just very wise people. My grandfather was a coal miner. You know, and so I just, even with him in the summers, he would always work overtime. We'd have to pack his pail, uh, which I still have, with two meals so that he could get overtime and make extra money for the family. And so I, I just saw a lot of work, but I didn't see a lot of pain. They did not share anger, they didn't share hate. They didn't share frustrations. Uh, when I look back, I'm like, you guys didn't tell me anything. But it was always a very, very positive attitude. And I, you and I have talked once before, one of the most wonderful books I read by Isabel Wilkerson in The Warmth of Other Sons. I actually gave that to my dad uh, as a, his first iPad book to read. And he loved it. He read it. And little did I know that his brother, who did become a lawyer here in Cleveland, but when he went to college, had to do a summer's being a, I think they were called a porter on trains. There's a lot of hard work, but there's also a lot of luck. So I think my education, uh, despite uh, growing up differently than my children grew up, who traveled, who could see the world, who had more parents with more finances, I think that the love and the protection that they gave us and the emphasis uh, for work sort of gave me my what I consider my authenticity, my courage, my persistence i 'm very humble. I can look at people who I know hurt and don 't have the same luck or pluck, you know, and a lot of what we do is luck so i I would say that 's kind of. That's kind of how I grew up and then for college and you know medical school that's its own journey but in terms of the what I would call the nurturing and my fertilizing years It really was um, my parents and grandparents. I think the other thing is my dad just had my sister and I who, like I said, she went to Yale, then she went to Columbia to get her MBA. And then he had the brother that was the lawyer who had three daughters. So technically, both of these men have passed on. My father, you know, just not that recently, but within the last two years. But we decided, my sister and I, to keep our names which is Bradley, and people, especially when I was getting married, and people are like, oh, you're going to keep your mate name. I'm like, well, there won't be any more Bradleys, technically, after death. So we kept it. Our sons, um, both my sister and I have sons, and their middle names are Bradley. And I never felt, this is what I wanted to say, um, that my dad wanted a boy or treated me like a girl. I always, I wanted to be a doctor for unknown reasons uh, since age four. And he just kept saying, do it. And when I say he, both of them, but he never set his sights low and, I'll oh, get married. And, you know, of course, he wanted one day to be a grandparent, but it was never that kind. It was always education first and the other will follow um, because that's how nature means it to be. But I think we grew up really taking care of each other as a community. Um, looking after each other, seeing, uh, and now I would say this, but in my in my family, I don't have any non-working women. That's all I that's all I know. And there was a little time in my life when my daughter, probably until really end of junior high school, had a real issue with me working because she didn't see other women at her elite all-girl school here in Cleveland really working, and that was. That was a little difficult parenting issue because, you know, you can't take off for 15 years, 14 years being a surgeon or any kind of doctor to have the skill set, you know, whatever we have to do um, to stay current. So we had a little issue with that. And I was like, you know, we would just say, look at all the women in our family on all sides of the family. Everybody worked. Okay, so get just get used to it. That's how it's going to be. And you, too, will work one day. So, but, you know, those were probably some of my adolescent bumps because we were not the, I was not the the mother like everybody else's mother, whatever that meant. But that's how life goes. And now she is so proud of me. You know, I'm I'm thinking about doing different things. No, 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 you can't stop ever stop working, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you, I will say this now because you know we're in a, a looking for a chairman. Mom, how come you're not applying for chairman? Like, this is not something I'm really interested in, to be quite honest. But you should. You always told us to do all blah, blah, blah. Well, right now I'm taking it. Just kind of chilling doing my fun stuff
0: chilling i think linda you are not you are you are you are still working so hard i love that i love that this is your chilling state but what an incredible journey you have had and and thanks for opening up about what your about, about your parents that 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 explains so much about how you are the way you are today with your mom being a teacher and your father you know being a coach that tells so much about you i can see them living on through you that's just amazing thank you Yeah, yeah. And I I really love how you're talking about how they emphasized education, right? That's one thing that I'm feeling that that has threaded through your entire journey. And, you know, I recently read that African-Americans make up only 4% of physicians, And we oftentimes say, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And just like you said, growing up, all the women that you that you saw were working. They were in the workforce, which I'm, I'm thinking probably impacted you as well. Um, my question for you is, you know, do you have any advice or what advice can you give to young black college students who are considering going into medicine? How do we get more black men and women into medical school?
1: Well, I think you have to be resistant, uh, res- resilient, persistent and don't take no and if you ta- if you hear a no be able to pivot. Now I will say this, I graduated at the top of my class for high school. The best you know, the best it could be for a public high school. And I went to Vassar, which you know was uh, at one point in fact when I went it had just become co ed. It was one of the seven sister schools. But when I went there, my professors didn't believe in me. So, you know, they often would say, um, why don't you be a lab tech? I mean, it's hard for me to to say that. You know, there were just lots of comments from teachers who are supposed to be your mentors and who you look up to. I really, if it wasn't for my parents and my friends, a group of women that we all ended up in med school and one became a, a PhD, but we supported each other and sadly, both in college and in medical school, we got very little um, accolades, attaboys, go girl, blah, blah, blah. So I guess what I would say to, uh, and it's different. It's very, very different because I ended up going to a college and two of my friends have kids that are med school. I'm like, why would you go, I should say medical school, why would you go to that college? It was so racist. They never supported people. But it's different now. So I, just like my parents saw something different, they lived. I cannot imagine living through what they lived through um, back in the day. I cannot imagine how we um, were treated as residents, the number of work hours. And for black residents in particular, I can only speak of the experience. Very little, even when you're doing well. I got honors and my OB clerkship, I did the acting. I mean, I did well. I was well liked. I was uh, when I got to Case Western. Out of nine residents, I was chosen solely as the executive chief resident. It wasn't a co position. You're chosen by not popularity, but by skills, by your faculty members. So I always knew I'm not the smartest, but I can tell you I worked the hardest. And um, I would tell that to. Any Anybody, women, we're asking specifically about um, black students, just don't give up and, and reach out for resources. Everybody doesn't tell you their, their backdrop and when they didn't do well on a test or when they wanted to give up. I mean, almost everybody has that, but I think if you can find a cadre of people in your community um, to help support you, uh, but don't give up easily because it's hard for everybody and it might be just a little bit harder for you. If you need a tutor, get tutored. I mean, one of our um, docs, she went to Vassar, I won't mention names. I had the hardest time with biochemistry. And offline, I'll tell you who this person was. She tutored me at Vassar. So I just would not give up. Find help. If you need to drop a class, you know, I would just say don't take all of these Science classes at once, no matter what college you go to, because the level of intensity and competing activities are there. If you need psychological help for depression, anxiety, eating disorders, get it. Um, there's a lot that goes on to make a physician, and it's not always an easy road. And you know, everybody that just looks so perfect on paper. It's not perfect, and they've had their own journeys. So that's what I would say. And the most important, you got to stay in school. That's number one. You know, in terms of just getting through high school, take challenging courses if you can and have opportunities to go to a a school with a better graduation rate. I mean, here in Cleveland, look, some kids, 30 to 50% of Spanish and black kids don't graduate. Okay, get out of your environment and learn more. Be learn new sports if you can. When you go, you know, when you move on, try out different things, different music, different history, different sports, those kinds of things. Dare to be different, you know, keep your own voice and seek out the people that might give you an attaboy. Speak up, don't take no, ask if you can participate. When I, my kids were growing up, every day I asked them, I said, were you a flag today? And so what does that mean? Yes, mommy, I was a flag. That means put your hands up and answer a question. Have an opinion, even if it's wrong. You know, you probably know me. I am always going to ask an opinion, um, whether it's popular or not, or voice an idea. And if Mm -hmm. people object, um, another thing I learned was be able to accept no. Okay, you don't like this idea. That's fine. I'm not going to you know, crumble and be crushed. To me, these are stay in school, don't become a parent before you're ready because that will make it more difficult. Take your sexuality very seriously in terms of protection for men and women. You know, I'm involved here in Cleveland with um, an inner city group called Coach Sam's and we do fundraising for kids that are in third grade. We get college students from all of the colleges and these kids have an enriching program four days a week, um, and what am I saying? Those kids, if they are not in this program, when they, when our kids are graduating, higher scores, they're passing a proficiency test. And my I have a cousin that was a lawyer here in Cleveland, part of the juvenile justice system. He's now in Chicago doing the same thing, but he sent me a white paper that said in Cleveland in particular, there's a third grade test. If you don't pass it, the city of Cleveland begins to look fast forward to prepare jails, J-A-I-L-S, cells, C-E-L-L-S, because they know that kids that don't pass this third grade test often don't get the sixth grade, the eighth grade, whatever and they don't graduate. So when I look at fundraising and where I want my money to go for certain things it can't go everywhere but I have we have found with our metrics that these small groups of kids do well. We started with one school where I think we're up to seven or eight. And we're raising money a wonderful group of ethnically diverse people. You know, it's just like now with COVID. Why don't we run 24-hour COVID vaccination all over America? If you ask me, you want to get it done? You got to be where the people are. But we, those in charge, have to find better ways of interacting with our community. And it just can't be our hours. And I'll give one last antidote. When I was a resident over at CASE everybody moaned about all these under-resourced women first of the month they're always late to clinic so we used to triple and quadruple book the clinic we had a a a chief resident who got permission for us little interns who were little witches back in the day complaining (laughs) and we had to go to the inner city of cleveland okay get down there okay and you know, they gave us, like a, a, back then it wasn't Uber, but to take a taxi, start on um, whatever street it was, okay, and get to university hospitals by a nine o'clock appointment. Okay. That shut us up. Okay. It was just us. We were in different areas. Each of us took different streets and different bus routes. Buses don't come on time. We didn't have little kids to get a diaper bag and the formula ready and the kid that's screaming when you want to and you find the s- socks and shoes. So here we are just by our little comfortable middle-class, upper-class selves at that time or thinking we were. And after that, I just shut, shut up. I was like, When I see a patient, I know that, yeah, people are, some people don't do the right thing, but many people have a hard time. In Cleveland, 57% of black people in Cleveland do not have a car. You know, the bus routes, okay you can't get to so there's all kinds of lack of transportation other what i call social determinants of life that interfere with getting good education interfere with getting good health care services and consistent health care services so i get it and uh, i just think we need to be better stewards at understanding this
0: understanding the barriers and being advocates for our patients absolutely really good points shift gears a little bit. I heard a previous interview that you had and they asked you if you could go back and relive one day in your life, what day would it be? And your response was my two pregnancies. And that touched my heart so much, Linda. It really, really did. And you just spoke about how good you felt and you were taking care of yourself. And you have uh, a daughter and a son. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, and I've met your daughter and she is just an amazing human. I met her at your celebrate sisterhood that was live two years ago. This past year was virtual. But I met her there and she is just an amazing human. Obviously, she came from you. Now, I want to talk to you about how you did this, right? So you're also married to a physician, and I am I'm also married to a physician, and um, as a lot of us are, I, th- I think. and we talk a lot about this work-life balance. and i I personally don't like the word balance. It, it um it makes me feel like I'm set up for failure before I even start because I work a lot, and I, I love I love working a lot. That's okay with me, actually. And so, you know, I like the word work life integration a little bit better. but would you mind talking a, li- a little bit about your experience uh, of raising, you know, two young kids married to another physician? and, and how did you do this? How did you make this work?
1: Well, let's go back to my residency. I think I'm the second. A woman at the time that became pregnant during my residency, and it was very interesting because I had just been asked to become executive chief resident and it turns out I must have loved Christmas parties a lot because I got pregnant. both kids are born in September, so I <laughs> gra- i was um, do the math yeah <laughs> when I got asked uh, maybe December you know and then I found out I was pregnant. I actually, even back then, said, oh my God, should I tell them? Well, I'm going to graduate, what is it, May or June and have a baby in September. So really, if my pregnancy went well, it would be fine. But for me and my generation of women, I don't know if I've said this publicly, but I felt like I was having an illegitimate child because I couldn't share the joy of being pregnant. You know, I'm tall, uh, at the time much thinner. I could kind of hide things. And I like to usually, I used to always try to look presentable to my patients, but I started wearing scrubs. And it probably wasn't until I was week 25 or 26 that someone kind of patted me on my stomach and said, are you pregnant? Meanwhile, all the guys whose wives were getting pregnant, they could just celebrate. So it made me very sad because I think that I thought that back then especially and maybe now in your generation and younger that there might be a maternal wall that people talk about that I might be disinvited to be um, executive chief resident. So to me, when I look back, you know, I'm so happy when the young residents bring me their three-minute, I don't know, maybe their sixty seconds things now for pregnancy tests. I mean, to be married, and we were married almost five years, to be happily pregnant... And wanting children to not be able to celebrate. You know, that's one of those still sort of post-traumatic stress moments for me. And and then having the second child. I mean, then you're working. I was a faculty member. I at one point for a couple of years was residency director at Case Western. You know, it's never a good time. But I would definitely, as you and I both know, it's never going to be a good time. Have a baby when you want Okay, life moves on. We've had people hit by a car, get sick, have an an illness that keeps them out, get leukemia. I mean, you know, life doesn't stop um, for anybody, and it shouldn't stop for pregnancy. So I think that was a myth to find the right time. You'll figure it out. And what I really feel sad when I look at women that are 15, 20 years older than me that are physicians and who had to choose between being a physician and a parent. And they just, you know, back then it was even, like my parents' stories, was worse. I can't imagine, you know, being childless by choice, that's perfect. Not, you know, having infertility, that's sadness. But to want a kid and not be able to do it because you don't think you can keep a job that you've so gainfully earned, um, it's often made me sad when I talk to women that are older and so I would tell young people, the residency, yeah, it's going to be tough on somebody, but life is tough. If it happened, you got COVID, you got appendicitis, and you had to be out. i just name any disease that the human body has. So I think the big issue is is your support. And for me, that was having parents that live five minutes away and having a phenomenal woman. We didn't call her a nanny, but she didn't live with us. But for 14 years of my of our life that could also assist with our child raising because I used to deliver babies until I am very busy practice until I came to the clinic you know that that to me is putting all your ducks in a row and having other things because life happens where the, your nanny whatever you want to call the person has to go or a parent gets sick or there is no parent I think the people that are in your uh, circle pay them well, okay? Treat them well, and people will stick with you. That's what I would say. I think you can't be too cheap for child care, housing, you know, taking care of your house. I probably overpaid, but I have very few people that I know of my generation that had somebody for 14 years. And my, I call her like a second grandmother. I mean, she only left By then, my kids are 12 and 14. They should be able to get home and blah, blah, blah. But she wanted to take care of her mom, who was 99, and didn't want to put her in a nursing home, and ultimately lived to 104. So we're still in contact with her. She's, oh, God, late 80s, early 90s now, but... She and my parents, really, and my husband. If you're a woman, marry the right man, okay? Don't, that's, you know, if you're same-sex, get with somebody who has the same values. My husband could cook, iron a shirt, he's a better housekeeper, neater than me. So I also have to say that is a shout-out because and he was never limited what I did and always was proud of my accomplishments, which are ultimately our accomplishments. And so, yeah, it takes that whole village, so to speak. One thing without the other it's like a link, a circle. If something's is removed, you're not linked together. And yeah, that's, and just, you know, when I look back, I don't miss the dollars for anything I spent on my children. For me to stay sane and that kept my marriage.
0: I love it. You hit so many really, really important points. What I heard was number one, build your tribe, right? Like if if you have a partner, pick the right partner. I absolutely agree with you. My partner runs my house. He's just it sounds just like your husband, very, very neat and cooks and cleans and does all the things, and um, so important. And the other thing I'm hearing is it is hire out the things that you don't want to do or you don't have time to do. I was taught so early to do that too. In that you know if you don't you know for me I, I don't like laundry. I hire someone out to do laundry and clean and the person who helps with our kids. And what that allows is that when we're home, we're home, right? When I'm home, I'm with my kids and I'm doing the things that I want to do. So even though my time home may be limited, when I'm home, I'm fully present. And I think that has really changed my life in regard to how I manage things.
1: No, I don't want to seem like I don't like anything. And one thing I did, um, I like I said, I grew up, we never did fast food, never. And my parent, my mom or dad cooked. And so for me, probably my... OCD thing was I would get up at five o'clock and I would have dinner made because I may not be able to be there. And I wanted my kids growing up to smell food cooking and onions and garlic and what I call the holy trinity of celery and green peppers, whatever I was cooking. So that's that is a, a job I took on. And the funniest thing is when I started doing all this traveling, I made all this food. I don't know if I, it wasn't, what's it called, Pinterest? They didn't have that back then. But I got, this is true, Tupperware that matched. So they were to eat everything in the blue Tupperware. It was rice, just say it was pot roast, it was the vegetables. Then there was yellow Tupperware and green. I come home and the food, and I really just agonized, Got all, did all this cooking maybe for two days before I left, thinking I'll leave it, my husband has it. And it was all sitting there. And that that's when Daddy ordered pizza, you know, and Chinese food. <laughs> and so the kids, you know, but here I am agonizing. And as I realized, you know, they're not eating this food. I let that go when I would travel. But that's kind of one of the things that... I did keep because I do love, enjoy cooking and um, kind of go that, from there. That's
0: great. So you get up in the morning, like 5 a.m. and make dinner.
1: Well, when my kids were growing up and for now, like I'll make enough, like on Saturday or Sunday to get me through midweek. Yeah, I still do that.
0: I love it. And you do. You have a huge passion for cooking. I mean, you have your own cookbook and I know, I know that you talk about this a lot and- and I've, I've heard you talk about the dash as well, right? Where there's a birth date and then the day that you die, we all die. And what do you do in that dash, right? Being that multidimensional person and having those 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 routes of, of real passion. And I know you've talked about getting your degree as a, as a chef and going to a culinary institute. Tell me more about this passion. where did this come from?
1: You know, I think it's just therapy. It's quiet some people, you know, I can never do golf because that's too many hours more away from kids. You know, something I wanted to do at the house, something that I could teach others. My grandmothers and I have old quilts and things like that. And my mom's college educated. She never did quilting and never did crocheting, some of the things my grandmother and great grandmothers did. So I wanted to just kind of leave something like, and my daughter ended up until COVID, unfortunately, two very successful restaurants in New York City. She's had to pivot. But I think some of this just um, eating healthy, you know, eating wisely. Uh, It's just therapeutic for me. Music, a glass of wine, new. I love going to different ethnic grocers. You know, when I traveled so much with the AAGL, I'm just going to say, oh, everybody went to see, you know, a monument somewhere. uh, Paris, the Louvre, museum. I'm taking cooking classes. You know, I went to South Africa with AAGL. Kathleen went with me, and we... To cooking classes at someone's home, so I call ahead, arrange through concierges, really intimate, one-on-one cooking classes. I've even done. I got invited to New, um, where was I? New Mexico. I called ahead and did two days of New Mexico cooking, and it turned out that the woman supposed to have five or six people, and they kind of whoever they were didn't come. So she said, "I'll have to charge you a little bit more." But I ended up for two days cooking. I paid more a great two days with this woman, just and she was probably 25 years older than me, but knew all the nuances of um, New Mexican chilies and and just different kinds of things. So for me, when I travel, I might not see the... I'll I'll get a postcard. I don't even know if they make postcards anymore. But I'll say, oh yeah, I did it, or send you a, a postcard. But I didn't see it. I have all my little bottles of sauces and condiments and different things. And so that's my fun when I look at traveling.
0: I love it. And you're right. I didn't really think about it this way until you until you stated it. It's, I guess it's obvious when I think about it, but cooking is really your legacy to go on through generations, right? I so hope so. It is, right? Like when I think about like my grandmother, she has these amazing recipes that I still can't get right, but certain things that stick out or like holidays during COVID, what did I do? I called my mom because I couldn't see her and said, send me all your recipes because I right. need that food, right? You're so right. It brings back the smells and the tastes bring back so many memories that food is so important.
1: But the little cookbook, that I did put together. There are a couple of meals that my kids love. One is a Jamaican jerk pasta. And pardon me for what you just said. there, my Every family has the great chef, the great um, baker, dessert maker, whatever. And I really wish I had my great grandmother's sweet potato pie recipe and she made a pie for each of the four grandkids and I'm surprised I didn't weigh a thousand pounds but she would not let the adults when we came to visit it was our pies and ours alone but it makes me sad that I don't have her recipe I've tried to replicate it and there's some secret sauce that we don't have so for me I did the cookbook and there's some little segments that I have there gave you know one to each of the kids and for my son I was like okay One of them requires teriyaki sauce, teriyaki um, to marinate. And then I specifically say, you find it in the Asian section. It is not soy sauce, you know, and it's all for my son, you know, whatever. There are a couple of things that are in there. I'm writing for others, but it's really for my kids, you know, and um, but it's fun. It's fun.
0: All right. So I want to wrap up. Talking a little bit about mentorship and sponsorship. So you are truly one of the most influential mentors and sponsors I've ever had. And I, I know I told you this recently, but you're one of the one of the main reasons why I made the move to Cleveland to just to collaborate with you and have you in my life. So Can you talk to me a little bit about what makes a great mentee? So, from from the mentee side, what can um, listeners do to really serve as a great mentee and get the most out of their mentor as possible?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to show up and to be present and to seek out. I get a lot of calls from you know from different people, and I often. I often say yes, probably too much. But what I used to do, I would call them. And now it's like, if you really want this relationship, you have to set it up, okay? Reach out. I'm not going to chase you. Like, I do have a student that I'm working with that's in med school having, you know, some issues. I will check in on her only because I'm concerned about her, okay? More of the emotional aspect. But if if things seem okay, you've got to set up the follow-up, you know, if there's a little bit of homework or reading or you're having an issue to practice something that we talk about so that when we meet again. So I think for the mentee is also to know what do you want out of the relationship?
0: I love it. So, So come prepared, be present, come prepared, have an agenda. And then also what I'm hearing is it's okay to have multiple mentors, right? Think about things that you're trying to get out of your mentor and have different mentors in different areas that that you feel like you have a need. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if I were doing things over, I think career-wise, I had some excellent people, love my husband, um, but I am horrible at financial planning, horrible about knowing our finances, and I'm admitting, you know, we can't be good at everything. But if I had to go back, I would find on, latch on to somebody that I could be mentored through through financial issues. But for getting back to your question, yeah, all the things that you tabulated, I think agenda setting, follow-up, um, being present, uh, and moving on when that mentor, you know, it's nothing to say, you know, you've really helped me and to be able to to move to the next step. So um, I think all of those things. And I also, for me, it's probably like your children, I love it when people will write back to me two years, five years, 10 years later, and just say, you know, thank you, this is what I'm doing. It have, may have nothing to do with the relationship that they, that I had with them. You know, they could be doing something totally different, but I wish that more people would do that. You know, I think that's important. I, I give the story and then I'll, you know, close. But my mom was a first grade teacher and she was, her name is Mrs. Bradley, she's still living and she got all of the awards growing up in the city of Cleveland, the city um, the superintendent of the Board of Education we have an article somewhere in our, our archives that said that Mrs. Bradley can teach a rock to read. Her kids all scored over ninety percent. She taught my son at three and a half he was reading fluently, and she also toilet trained him at. At 18 months. Don't ask me how how, but our kids are two years apart. She's like, You're not having two kids in diapers. Like, but my mom, he's a boy, and it takes longer for a boy to she no, nope, nope, he will be toilet trained. That kid was toilet trained in a heartbeat. Oh
0: my God, I need her in my life. I need her now. <laughs> I know. I know. I
1: know. <laughs> With my mom in terms of her teaching and reaching back, she had they had music classes and she had a little boy that she tells this story that she just knew was gifted and a genius with music. Do you not know, like 30 years later, he became, he's an African-American guy, became a core, um, like conductor for the orchestra wow. and called the public board of education to see if my mom was still alive and invited my parents to that performance at Severance Hall. So to this day, if you met her, you would say, tell me about a couple of your students. And so for me, it's that passion. You know, you become the greatest teacher, the greatest community activator, activist, rather. The greatest, um, you become chair, co- whatever. Or you're just a good a good doctor and give back. To me, you know, the word doctor means teacher. Don't forget those who's, um, who help plant trees. They may never see what the fruits of the tree fully, but let us know how you're doing. Um, to me, that to me is the biggest thing at, where I am age-wise in terms of well, what happened, how are these people doing, what did I really do? And I think give flowers to people when they're alive. Um, you know, when my father passed away, oh I have to feel a little choked up here, but when we had his service, and you know, you're sitting in the front row of the church in the pew, there were so many people I knew, but I didn't know that knew me and my sister, but I didn't know them. There were a group of three young black boys that came by and shake shook our hands and I just said, Well how is it what did you know? How did my father influence your life? And you know, he, each of them took a moment in that long line and procession to say, your father, because he did become the health teacher, the coach, and he became principal of a junior high school here, Gallagher Junior High School here in Cleveland, the most underserved area. But your father used to come over to our house to make sure we were studying and that we had our books. And your father helped raise money. And your father did this. And it was a shame that I didn't know that aspect of my dad. He was, when I say strict, he wasn't mean, but he had principles and we had to do certain things and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, to hear people celebrate his life and to know what he did, I just hope that he knew that when he was alive because it was such inspiration for me. And even now with my mom being 89, when people tell me um, how much she's helped their lives. You see different aspects of your parents, you know. And the same thing with being a a doctor, you know. And for me, you know, I love my hysteroscopy and myomectomy. So when I'm out and see all my myomectomy babies, I'm (laughs) proud. So come up to me, oh, Dr. Bradley, you saved my uterus. And these are my kids. Or I'm visiting my mom and... People will come up to me. She does a lot of bridge, and, oh, my God, thank you, thank you. I'm like, what are you thanking me for? Oh, I became a grandmother because you kept her uterus, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, you know, we're happy about those things, but... I would just say, oh, I don't know what I want to say. Just be a good doctor, be a good human. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Collaborate, Um, speak up right now so that we can improve access to quality healthcare. Address racism where you work and bias and systemic barriers. You know, it's often said now, cause good trouble. Do not settle for things that just aren't right. You know, start building what I consider a culturally competent healthcare workforce throughout the healthcare system. And um, give people a chance. Give people a smile. Forgive people who maybe have done something. Give them another chance. And so, you know, I think that we who are gifted owe a lot to others. And as Maya Angelou often said, when you give, you get. And when you learn, you teach. And that, to me, are principles to be guided by.
0: Linda, you are so amazing. I have goosebumps all over, truly. I, I can't thank you enough for your transparency and for your vulnerability this morning. It has meant so much to me, and I'm sure to all of our listeners as well. So on that note, thank you so much for your time today. And um, again, it's been an honor to talk with you this morning. Thank you. And
1: don't forget, you have to do hysteroscopy. Get it in your <laughs> practice. Use it every day. As you know, my hystroscope. Is my stethoscope.
0: Oh my God. I love you more every time I talk to you. Absolutely, Linda. I love it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll talk to you okay. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Right. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.